Please turn in your copy of God's Word to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. Near the end of the New Testament, you have James' epistle. We'll be this morning in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. James chapter 2. Please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray once more. Our Father, we have laid open before us copies of your inspired word. But we recognize these words can be seen by our eyes, taken into our brain, and have no effect on our hearts apart from your Spirit's work. So we pray that you would come sweetly and graciously, and in power would you send your Spirit among us to be our teacher and to open up the things of God to us. Bless us in this work and help us, teach us through your Word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Bible uses the phrase faith alone once. And the only time it uses the phrase is to negate the idea that we are justified by faith alone. James 2.24, which we just read, reads, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And I wonder if that troubles you. If it troubles you, I hope that by the end of this sermon this morning, it will no longer be so. In fact, I hope we'll see that what James is saying is actually something quite fundamental and basic to the Bible's teaching on faith, though James may use language that sounds to us a little jarring, uh, given his peculiar context. We have come this morning to the end of our series on the life of Abraham, and um, that 
account is well known to Christian people, but I will summarize it for you to remind you of what we saw there. In that passage, God tests the faith of Abraham, the faith which he had decades prior. God tests Abraham's faith by calling him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac who was promised to Abraham, was said to be the son of promise. And Abraham was told that through this son, his offspring would be named, and indeed all the families of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham is told to sacrifice this son, and Abraham, in faith, obeys the word of the Lord, and every step of the way throughout the narrative of Genesis 22 indicates to us that he plans, he intends to actually follow through with what the Lord has called him to do. And we considered how in Hebrews 11, Abraham is said there to have had such faith in God that he assumed that God was able even to raise his son from the dead if, in fact, he followed through and executed the plan of God, the call of God on Abraham's life. But, of course, you know the story at the last minute. The angel comes to Abraham and tells him not to harm the child, but that actually his faith had then been proven. And then he restates the promises that he had already made to Abraham in other places. And after surveying the narrative last week, I stated that Genesis 22, that chapter and that test that God uh, brings upon Abraham, that it highlights two of the defining traits of saving faith. We see it there in a striking and in-your-face kind of way. They're traits that are taught and expounded in other places in the Bible. The one we considered last week was that true saving faith derives its life not from outward circumstances, but from the promises of God. Faith derives its life not from that which is seen, but that which is unseen. I've turned our attention this morning to James chapter 2, which is one of the few passages in the New Testament that reflect on the narrative in Genesis 22, uh, the account of Abraham being prepared to offer up his son Isaac. And in this passage in James 2, we have articulated for us the second principle that I think we learn from Genesis 22. So James has identified this principle for us, and through the words of James, I want to expound this principle, this defining trait of saving faith. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. I want to summarize the basic argument that James is making in one simple statement, this defining trait of saving faith. What is faith like? James is going to tell us through using Genesis 22. And then I just want to kind of open up that that thesis or that idea that James is presenting here, that summary of his argument through five other statements that seem to arise from the text itself. So here's the thesis, here's the summary, I think, of James's argument in James 2, 14 through 26, and this is one of the defining traits of saving faith I think we're meant to see in Genesis 22. Here it is. True saving faith must bear fruit in good works or else it is not true saving faith at all. Let me say that again. True saving faith must bear fruit in good works, or else it is not true saving faith at all. I think this is one of the things we learn from Genesis 22. It's the main point James is trying to establish in James 2, and now I just want to kind of expound that thesis, that central argument, under five main headings. So number one, first of all, we should notice in this passage, number one, James is critiquing false faith, or we could say bogus faith, or dead faith, 
or sham faith. James is critiquing false faith, not the kind of real faith that I hope you and I possess in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. James is critiquing false faith. So look again at verse 14, and we'll read through verse 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So I just want us to appreciate from the word go in this passage that James makes clear the kind of faith he has in mind. Spoiler alert, it is not the Bible's view of saving faith. James is confronting a false notion of faith. It is not Jesus' view of faith that James is critiquing. It's not the Apostle Paul's view of saving faith that James is critiquing. James has in view, apparently in this context, a group of people who purport to have faith, profess to have a kind of faith, but do not have works, meaning they apparently do not think obedience to God's law matters. And they do not think upholding His righteous standards are of importance to Christians. You, in their view, can have something called faith, but whether or not you actually embrace Christ's lordship or give yourself to the kinds of works and commands and behaviors that are pleasing to Him, that is really a matter of indifference. That is the notion of faith that James is critiquing, a kind of faith that lacks or is indifferent to obedience or works or good deeds. Now, this is important you see this. If you're reading from the ESV translation, James follows up with this question in the second half of verse 14. He says, can that faith save him? You see that if you're using the ESV? Can that, that kind of faith, that view of faith, can that faith save him? It's not can faith save him? As the King James renders it, no, the original Greek should read something like, can this notion of faith, can that faith that thinks works are a matter of indifference, following Christ in obedience is a matter of indifference, can that faith save him? In other words, can that understanding of faith be accepted as true saving faith? The notion of faith that suggests some measure of belief in certain doctrines about God is all that matters, but whether or not you actually love and serve others or follow Christ in his obedience and follow His commands, that really is not important. James is saying, is this an acceptable notion of faith? Can this notion of faith actually save anybody? The kind of faith that apparently believes certain doctrines about God, but does not embrace Him for all that He is, following Him in good works and good deeds and in obedience. And of course, His answer will be no. And I hope your answer would be no. Can that faith save anybody? A kind of faith that doesn't come to expression in good works, in obedience to Christ, he's going to argue is a sham faith. It's false faith. It's not within a thousand leagues of the Bible's view of what saving faith actually is. Which, by the way, is not some kind of novel or sort of idiosyncratic answer that James is giving to us here. This was taught to us by Jesus, John 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Or the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, 
neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Or the Apostle John in 1 John 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him, in other words, I have a saving knowledge of Christ by faith, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Faith in Christ, love for Christ, knowledge of Christ, all of these people are saying, from Jesus to Paul to John to James, is meant to produce obedience and good works. That is what love, genuine love for God does. True knowledge of God does. True faith, Paul tells us, works through love. Faith that doesn't produce works isn't true living, saving faith at all. It is bogus faith. It is dead faith. So James illustrates this, James 2 verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, that's not how faith operates. The the picture is is someone naked coming to your door needing to be clothed, and, and you saying, go forth, brother, be warmed. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Go on, brother. Or someone comes starving to your door, and you say, well, well, be filled. I pronounce this blessing on you. Go go for it. And and you don't instead run and grab a coat and a blanket and cover your brother or sister's nakedness and bring them in and warm them by your fire. If you don't give them the food and drink that is needful for the body, that's the scenario that James is anticipating. He says, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's saying, if you say you have something called faith, but your heart is shut up to your brother or your sister who is in desperate need, I just as soon assume you are not a Christian. Your notion of faith is is, is sub-Christian. It is sub-Bible. It is a distortion of the Bible's teaching on what saving faith is. I assume you don't have faith actually at all. Not that you have faith but lack works. Rather, James assumes you lack saving faith, which works. You see that distinction? Saving faith works. You can't separate the two. The idea is unimaginable. How can someone with true saving faith shut up his heart to his brother or sister who is in desperate need? That's not what faith does. That's not how faith operates. That's some bogus and sham notion of what faith is. Now listen again. This is nothing novel here. James is not introducing some new doctrine into the Bible, the apostle John will come close to saying almost the very exact same thing in 1 John 3, 16 through 18. He says this, by this we know love. Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He's using a different category of love, But he's making the point, if you profess to say, I love God, but you don't care about your brothers and sisters in Christ, and in this instance where you see them in great distress and need, you have no instinct to help them, I just as soon assume you don't love God. Your view of love, though you may say you love God all day long, is a bankrupt notion of what love is. That's how James is arguing about faith. If you say you have faith, but it produces no practical care and concern for other people, I just assume you don't have faith. That could only be dead faith. It's unimaginable that faith could act in that kind of a way in that 
situation. James is acknowledging that some have so diluted faith of those works as to produce a version of faith that is not faith at all. So we need to appreciate here on the front end, I've spent more time on this point than I will any other, because it's important that we understand from the word go, James is not critiquing faith in the way Jesus uses the term, or the way Paul uses the term, or the way John will use that term. He's critiquing false faith or sham faith. And so I think we're helped here at this point by this clarifying statement from one of the commentators on James who says this. This is, I think, very helpful. He says, it is absolutely vital to understand that the main point of this argument is not that works must be added to faith, but that genuine faith includes works. He says, this is part of its very nature. He's not saying, well, you have saving faith, but then you've got to put works on top of that. No, he's saying saving faith will include, will produce, go hand in hand with works. Okay, the second point, and we'll move a little more quickly here. Number two, James teaches works are actually the proof of true saving faith. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James is acknowledging that some have so evacuated the idea of faith, of those works that actually are to proceed from faith, that they actually think they can sort of bifurcate and separate the two. But over here we can have faith, and over here we can have works, and we can talk about them in isolation from one another. They can be separated from one another. People can speak of faith and works as separate things that have no relation to one another, as if faith can exist long without works, like a body without a heartbeat or something. Or, or maybe more accurately, like a heartbeat that doesn't pump blood. It would make no sense, wouldn't it, to, to speak of someone living and moving and being animate who did not have a heart that was beating and pumping blood to the rest of the body, right? It's just, just a crazy idea. That's the way James is making this argument. You cannot separate faith and work. These things must go together. You can't speak of them in isolation from one another. Rather, it is our works that prove our faith. They show that the root issue is actually within us. James is saying you're misunderstanding the relationship between faith and works. Works, good deeds, obedience to Christ are the proof of saving faith. The litmus test. They show that saving faith is actually there. They are actually meant to proceed from saving faith. In other words, how, how do you know that someone actually is in possession of true saving faith? James is saying you'll know by their works. You'll know by their instincts and impulses. Do they wish to do the will of God? Do they love their neighbor? Do they love their brothers and sisters in need? Do they have compassion on others? Do they seek to be ready for every good work? His argument is kind of like this, a good tree bears good fruit, a dog barks, a cow moves, a person in possession of true saving faith engages in good work. That's part of the nature of how faith operates. See, though James doesn't exactly use this language, he's in essence saying faith and works relate to each other as root and fruit. I think that's a helpful illustration. It's an imperfect illustration, because in theory you can conceive of having a root in your hand without the fruit. In the world of this analogy, the point is faith that God gives to us is like the root, the seed that goes down into good soil. 
And good works are the, like the fruit that springs up and hangs on the trees. That is the inevitable result of planting the seed of faith into the heart of a born-again sinner. You've been regenerated and changed by the grace of God. You've been given the gift of faith. Well, what can we expect? Well, that faith inevitably at all times invariably will produce fruit. And sometimes brighter and fuller than at other times, but there will inevitably be an organic connection between faith and works. We cannot conceive of a situation in which faith is operative and works aren't what follow. There must be a connection between these things, and the connection, James says, is that our works prove our faith. They demonstrate that the root is there. That's how we know the root has, or the seed has taken root because fruit is produced. Okay, that's the second point. So, number one, James is critiquing false faith. Number two, James teaches works are actually the proof of true saving faith. Now, consider with me thirdly, James argues that faith that is reduced to mere belief in doctrine does not save. James argues that faith, a notion of faith, that is reduced to mere belief in doctrine does not save. I cannot emphasize this point enough. I've endeavored to emphasize it throughout this series. James makes the point well in verse 19. He says, okay, you believe that God is one. You do well. Congratulations. Ducky for you. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What's his point? What is James doing here? Well, he's supplying a a test, a doctrine as an example. He says, you believe that God is one. In other words, you believe in the unity of God's person. Good. Orthodox theology. You believe God is one. Good for you. Congratulations. So do the demons, by the way. What effect does it have on them? What effect has your belief in doctrine had on you? The demons are the most orthodox people in the world. (laughs) They were with God in heaven at one point and fell. They see the spirit realm in ways we can't. They have fine orthodox theology, but what effect? What fruit does it bear in their life? Similarly for you, you believe this doctrine. What fruit has it borne in your life? What effect has it had on you? And more than that, I think his point is that mere factual knowledge about God and assent to doctrine does not save you. A lot of people with head knowledge know and even believe the facts about God and the gospel. But see, faith is more than that. It's not less than believing the facts. Not less than orthodox knowledge about who God is and who Christ is and what sin is and what the gospel is. But faith is more than knowledge, more than assent to the facts. True faith involves conviction. True faith involves trust. This is the point I was trying to make in the introduction of last week's sermon, if you were here. Faith is a whole-souled self-commitment to God in Christ. It's giving up my life to Him and to follow Him, which must always come to expression in some measure of obedience and good works. It is not enough to say, I have orthodox beliefs, therefore I have true saving faith, and I am a Christian. Listen, friends, there are millions of people in hell today who had orthodox beliefs, who would have died saying, I believe God created the world. I believe that 
God sent His Son into the world. I believe that He died on a Roman cross. I believe that He rose from the dead. Stranger things have happened. There are lots of people in hell who believe that because that is not ultimately the whole story on what saving faith is. You can have mere factual knowledge and assent about the facts and not give yourself over to Christ, not turn from your sins and stake all that you are and all that He is and trust Him and depend upon Him for your salvation and follow Him in obedience and good works as He intends you to do. That is what saving faith does. It's not less than factual knowledge, but it's more. And I just want to lean in here. The kind of person James envisions, my friend, is that you? You wouldn't object to the orthodox doctrines of Christianity. Sure, I don't have a problem believing the Nicene Creed. I think Jesus was a historical person. I do think He rose from the dead. My question is, have you ever given yourself to Christ in trust and in repentance? Have you ever come to depend upon Him, to believe that He is a Savior for your sins? And have you ever counted the cost and decided, I'm going to give my life to follow Him, because that's what saving faith does? My friend, I want you to know there is so much more to have than mere factual knowledge about orthodoxy. There is a living and vital communion with God in Christ that you're meant to have. Faith involves actually coming and bringing my baggage and my sin, my life, and putting it on the table and giving it over to Christ and looking to Him in saving faith to follow Him. That is the nature, the essence of saving faith. And that is James' argument. It's one thing to know in theory that you are hungry, to know that bread, the way that it works, would satisfy hunger. It's another thing to stand before the bread of life, starving, and to say, I I want you. I want the bread that you offer, and then to taste it and to have it. That's what saving faith is like. Fourth point. Third was that James argues that faith is reduced to mere belief in the doctrine, in doctrine, excuse me. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Faith argues, James argues, excuse me, (laughs) that a notion of faith that is reduced to mere belief in doctrine does not save. Okay, number four. Now we're getting to how James connects with Abraham. Number four, James cites the example of Abraham to demonstrate. James cites the example of Abraham to demonstrate that faith must have works if it is to be regarded as genuine faith. Faith must have works if it is to be regarded as genuine faith. Now, Abraham enters the picture And this is why I've brought us to this passage, to reflect on how New Testament writers are reflecting back on these historic events. So now I want you to think on Genesis 22 and what Abraham did. There he didn't have faith for the first time. He had believed decades prior. He had believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, 6, maybe 50 years before the events of Genesis 22. But there his faith was tested, the true, genuine, saving faith that he had. And what did he do? He obeyed. And he worked, and he did as God had called him to do. And hear what James says, verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, faith apart from works is useless? So he wants to reach for a biblical example to prove his point. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works 
when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. So Abraham had faith before those events. He believed God, and that faith, in Genesis 15, was counted to him as righteousness. But now some years have passed, and Abraham is being tested, and he passes the test, and faith is proven by his works. James is saying that Abraham's works in that instance were a vindication of his faith. They demonstrated his faith. They proved his faith. Works were operative along with his faith in the way they're meant to be operative for all those who have genuine faith. They proved his faith. And listen, in this limited sense, this qualified sense, it can be said that they justified Abraham and that they proved the presence and the living reality of true, genuine, saving attachment to God. They showed Abraham's faith to be genuine. If this helps you, it's like works were a justification of Abraham's justification. You see what I'm saying there? How do we know that Abraham truly possessed the faith that justifies? It is because that faith operated in the way that saving faith always operates. Faith works, and thus they were a vindication of his justification, a vindication that the root matter was within him, a vindication that he truly was in possession of saving faith. So maybe you've heard it this way. Sometimes Protestants and Reformed folks will say that we are justified by faith alone. But the faith that justifies is never alone. It has works with it. That's what faith does. That's how faith operates. So it was in Abraham's case, so it is in the case of every child of God who has true, genuine, saving faith. It's an interesting statement at the end of verse 22. There we read, faith was completed by his works. He has faith. Maybe 50 years later, here he is in an instance where his faith is being tested, and his faith, James says, is completed by his works. That maybe isn't the best translation. It is the idea that faith was perfected by his works, or, 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 or faith reached a point of maturity and climax and fulfillment by his works. But the idea is, what, what does faith look like out in the wild? How does it live? How does it operate? See, faith is a living and restless and active thing. It is dynamic. It is not static. It's not mere belief clinically in facts about God. It's a living force and power within us. That's what faith does. It's wriggling. It's restless. It's full of life. It's animate. And what does it do as it grows and as it reaches maturity and as it comes to its climax? It, it works. What, what, what is an apple but... but an apple seed reaching its maturity, being perfected, reaching the point. You plant an apple seed to produce works, produce apples. And so it is that God gives the gift of faith that it might grow organically and, 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 and give itself to those things that faith gives itself to, operate and act and behave as faith is meant to behave. He gives a, a heartbeat so that life would come and that animation would come to our limbs and our ligaments and our eyes and our ears and our bodies so that we can walk and move. That's how faith works within us. It is meant to 
to come to perfection, come to maturity, come to full life and expression in good works. I think that is James's point. And what he wants us to appreciate, and these opponents here in James too, is that the idea that we can separate faith and works is just, it's inconceivable. This is just not what faith does. It's not what faith is. Faith inevitably bears fruit in good works. Okay, the fifth and final point. I'll summarize them for the note-taker. False faith, point number one. Point number two, James teaches works are actually the proof of true saving faith. Point number three, James argues that faith that is reduced to mere belief in doctrine does not save. Point number four, James cites the example of Abraham to demonstrate that faith must have works if it is to be regarded as genuine faith. Now, point number five, this is important. If, if you've left me for a minute, come back, okay? We need, we need um, the chemist's scalpel here to understand this point. And if I say anything in the next five minutes that creates any confusion in you, please come and talk to me. Please come and talk to Pastor Ben. I'm going to labor to be as clear as I can be. But this is, this is an important point. Number five, James teaches that final justification, it's not the initial moment when we were first justified, but when like, we appear before the bar of Christ. James teaches that final justification holds in view our good works. Works which must, of necessity, proceed from true saving faith. That was a mouthful. Let me say it again. James teaches that final justification requires, you could say, or holds in view our good works. Works which must of necessity proceed from true saving faith. Look at verse 24. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. If that's an unfamiliar account to you, we're not able to explain that today. That's another sermon. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James teaches, I think here, that final justification holds in view or requires good works works which must of necessity proceed from true saving faith. Now, please listen carefully here. I want you to understand what I am not saying as much as what I am saying. I am not saying that when we are initially justified before God, declared righteous in God's eyes, pardoned of our sins, then and for all eternity, I am not saying that our works form the ground of merit at all before God. Not at the initial point of justification, not ever. They do not, and they are not taken into account when we are justified. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, was counted to him as righteousness. Apostle Paul, Romans 3, 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Election and the gifts of regeneration of faith are totally Listen, brother, sister, totally unconditional. Nor am I saying that we are maintained in the faith 
sort of like keep our seat at the table. We are maintained in the faith by our good works, as though we are justified by faith, but continue in the faith so long as we continue to perform good works. That as soon as we fail in the arena of works, we're out. So yes, we got in by faith in Jesus Christ, but now it'll remain to be seen whether this person stays in the faith based on their performance. I'm not saying that. James is not saying that. No one in the Bible says that. Nor am I saying our good works will form the grounds of our merit before God on the last day. I'm not saying that. It will only be the merits of Christ. It was true on the day we were first justified. It will be true on the last day. Our hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Listen, that is always true. Anything other than that is legalism. Our merit before God is only ever based on what God has done for us in Christ. Okay, what am I saying? No one will be finally saved who does not have good works. Good works that of necessity proceed from the saving faith that justifies. Don't get this wrong. We don't want any legalists here saying that they establish their righteousness by their works. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying the vindication, the proof of the true saving faith that justifies is the good works that indubitably, inevitably, invariably flow from faith. So this is the reason why James can say something as bold as, you see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. He, He cannot imagine a scenario in which someone is in possession of true saving faith, but does not work. Faith without dead, it's not real faith. It isn't the true saving faith that justifies. It's just so a part of what faith is, works must be present with it. The inevitable fruit that is born, faith works. Just as a living person with a heartbeat is active and animate and speaks and talks and thinks and moves, so faith, when it is when and real and alive, it works. And so on the last day, if you have here someone who professes to have something called faith, but in 30 years there is no evidence that that faith has produced any works, that person will not be permitted to enter everlasting life, not because their works form the ground of their merit at all, but because their lack of works demonstrate they never had true, genuine, saving faith in Christ, who is all their merit before the throne. If it helps you, you might think of it this way. All of us in the courtroom of heaven have a file. And if in that file there are no works, look over the record of this person's life, there is no evidence that this person ever obeyed God, sought to follow Christ and His commands, That person will not be granted entry into heaven. But but if there is in the file, along with innumerable sins and failures that we all bring to the table, that we all have in our file, actual concrete acts of obedience to Jesus and love toward our brothers and sisters and love for God and good deeds and charity those kind of acts that are the very proof positive that saving faith exists. 
then we will be saved. Not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of the faith that works. Brothers and sisters, I'll just say, I'm not saying anything other than what Martin Luther said, what John Calvin taught, what the Puritans have taught, what Reformed thinkers like D.A. Carson and John Piper teach today. I'm saying that faith and works are so inseparable that there is no conceivable notion, no conceivable scenario in which someone can actually be in possession of true saving faith without that faith doing what faith does, living as faith lives, acting as faith acts, in bearing the fruit of good works. So I return to my thesis, which is, I think, James's thesis. True saving faith must bear fruit in good works, or else it is not true saving faith at all. Faith and works in the Christian life are inseparable, as the spirit and the body are inseparable. Okay, I want to conclude with two implications. Two implications from this, what I'm calling one of the defining traits of saving faith, illustrated in Genesis 22, expounded in James 2. Implication number one, Christians who have put their faith and trust in Christ unto salvation must and indeed will devote themselves to obedience and good works. Christians who have put their faith and trust in Christ unto salvation must and indeed will devote themselves to obedience and good works. Good works, obedience to Christ are part of the warp and woof of the Christian life. They're part of how saving faith works and operates and lives and moves and has its being. And I want to accentuate this point by giving you a few quotations from the Apostle Paul, and that's deliberate. Because some people who aren't studying their Bibles very carefully will act as though there is an irreconcilable tension between what James says in James 2 and what Paul says elsewhere in passages like Romans 3 and 4. Well, we've looked at Romans 3 and 4 in previous sermons. I'm not going to open those passages up now. But I want to cite for you a handful of texts to show you that Christians must and indeed will devote themselves to good works. Paul says this in Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What counts for anything before God? Well, it's not external adherence to the Mosaic laws like circumcision. No, what counts is faith, faith that works through love. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And saved by faith, brother, sister. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. But listen to this, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. First series of sermons we did here at Emmanuel was in Ephesians. And I don't know if anyone remembers this point. Ephesians 2. I made the point, verses 8 through 10, that the prepositions are very important. Of course you remember this, right? Even as I'm saying it, you know exactly what I mean, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not the result of works, or it's not of works. We are not saved of works. It's the preposition of, by. They're not the ground, the root, the foundation, the merit. 
We are not saved of works, but verse 10 makes clear we are saved for works. The purpose for which God gives the saving faith by which we're saved is that we would walk in those good works which God prepared beforehand and which will be in our file on the day of judgment. Because the faith He gives us inevitably proceeds in good works. Paul says in Titus 2.14 a similar thing. Christ gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. If Jesus saved you, brother and sister, if the Lord saved you, it was to make you into, to transform you into a man or woman that is zealous for good works. That's why He saves people. He renews their nature, transforms them, and changes them such that they carry on in good works. Titus 3.8, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Here's my point. If you want to have a negative view of works, Paul ain't your guy. He's saying this is the reason God saves us, that we would walk in good works, that we would perform those works that He has transformed us for and called us to, not to become the foundation of merit before God, but to prove that Jesus Christ has actually given the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit. Paul believed that faith must work through love. He believed that we were saved so that we would walk in good works. He believed Jesus redeemed us and transformed us in order that we would be a people zealous for good works. He believed that people who have faith ought to, indeed will, devote themselves to good works. Now, does that sound like the kind of people James is critiquing in James 2? Not at all. He's critiquing people that are teaching a doctrine of faith that says it doesn't matter what you do. Whether or not faith actually follows Jesus and obeys His commands, that doesn't really matter. That notion of faith will not save you, brother, sister. That notion of faith is bankrupt because faith works. Faith obeys. Faith follows. So what is the point of application here? Faith shows itself, proves itself. It walks out in obedience and good works. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I encourage you, let us exercise faith in the promise of God and give ourselves wholeheartedly to good works. This is the kind of Christian that Jesus calls us to be, and Paul, and John, and James, and that the example of Abraham illustrates. Let us be a people devoted to good works, devoted to helping the poor, the needy, and the sick among us and in the world. Let us love our neighbors. Let us encourage and build up our brothers and sisters. Let us show hospitality. Let us speak the truth to and with one another. Let us contribute from our material resources to help and bless one another. Let us love and serve widows and orphans. Let us sacrifice our time to help one another and serve one another. Let us be a people who are engaged in washing one another's feet as the Lord Himself instructed to us, as He said would prove our love to Him. Let us regard the needs and interests let us study the will of Christ our master and seek to do his will in love to Christ and love to one another and love for a needy world these are the impulses of faith the infant cries of new life this is what faith does a second implication if you profess to have faith but lack works 
My friend, in love, I need to tell you this. You are self-deceived. If you profess to have faith but lack works, you are self-deceived. Because part of the nature of true saving faith is that faith works. We don't want to hear this notion that, well, yes, I had faith, I came to Jesus in faith when I was 12, 13, 14, but then I followed after the things of the world. I didn't really accept Christ as Lord until probably I was like 36, 37. That's when I really started to follow Christ. All I hear when someone says that is, well, you didn't have saving faith when you were 12, 13, 14. Faith is not indifferent to the commands of Christ. Faith follows. Faith obeys. Faith delights in God's law. A seed that takes root in good soil, it bears fruit. A heartbeat pumps blood. Faith works. Faith works. And if looking at your life, you recognize, I'm indifferent to the commands of the Lord Jesus. I don't see any works in my life. I don't obey. I don't follow. But, but hey, I believe the Nicene Creed. My friend, you are self-deceived. Faith without works is dead. It is bogus faith. It is not real faith. Now, this is really, really important. If I've just described you, what should you do? Don't work. The solution for you is not, well, now I need to start doing good works so I really can earn my No, 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 no. You must be born again. You must be changed at the heart level. Receive the gift of faith. To cry out to God and say, Lord, transform me. Put the root issue in me. Give me a heart of flesh that beats for you and lives for you. Change my nature. Renew my nature. Cause me to be born again. And then you will find If you turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ and experience the new birth, you will find new impulses and new instincts. You'll hardly know yourself. You think, I I didn't used to love God's Word. The church was impossibly lame to me. The songs were hokey. I didn't understand what the preacher was hollering about, but now I treasure it. And you know what? People that I just looked at that kind of bothered me and annoyed me and seemed like an inconvenience to me, these these are my brothers and sisters and we're a family. And what are these new instincts and these new impulses? They are the infant cries of saving faith. If, If you realize that you do not have works, you're not following after Jesus, well, don't start doing works of penance and religious formalism to make it right. Cry out to God and ask to become a new creation. Come to Him in repentance and faith, and He will change you and He will save you. I don't know why this analogy has always stuck with me. It's kind of a silly analogy in some ways, but I heard it 20 years ago, and I have not forgotten it. There was this preacher, he was talking about the new birth, and and he was saying, and I can say this too because there are chipmunks at my my house, he was talking about looking outside his study window at chipmunks, and I could do that outside my basement study, and I could see a chipmunk, and imagine that the chipmunk could talk, and I could speak chipmunkies or whatever, and the chipmunk came to the windowsill, and his name is Chippy, and I say, Chippy, I want you to fly. Spread your wings and fly, Chippy. But Chippy can't do that. Why? He's in his very nature. He, He doesn't have wings. Chipmunks can't 
fly. What would need to happen for Chippy to be able to fly? Well, he'd have to be so transformed as to become like a bird or something, because birds can fly. Well, if you are not a Christian, what you need is to close with the Lord Jesus Christ and put your saving faith and trust in Him so that He can, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, make you into a new creation. Oh, and then you'll fly. The wings of faith will take flight and you'll, you'll carry out the good works that God has prepared beforehand that they should walk in them. I don't know if that helps you. Maybe some of you kids will remember the chipmunk uh, analogy. I want to close uh, with this. Uh, because we are concluding the series on the life of Abraham. And I know this sermon has got us into maybe a little bit putting him in the background. I want to bring him back to the foreground. What have we seen in these weeks? I was talking to a friend on the phone on Friday about what I've learned in this series, expounding the narrative in Genesis 12 through 22. And I was saying to him that I, I am just overwhelmed by how fickle, Abraham was, and how it seems that instances of failure seem to outnumber instances of triumph and success. Has that been your impression? Abraham, that man of faith, just disappoints us in so many ways, doesn't he? He's, you know, pawning off his wife to Pharaoh, later to Abimelech, seems to have no regard for her. He impregnates this servant of his wife and then banishes her into the wilderness. It is treacherous and wicked things. I mean, not just fickle, I mean, downright wicked at times. But then I was thinking of all these New Testament passages we looked at and how they reflect on Abraham and how positive and bright the picture of Abraham is. This is, this is that man of faith, Galatians 3. He has given, given a portrait in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. He's said to be this, this great paradigm for us that we're to look to in terms of what an example of faith is. And so it seems that through all the failure and all the sin and all the terrible things in his background and in his life, things that were done to him and things that he did, see that nonetheless there was faith, sometimes burning low, sometimes burning brightly. And indeed, Genesis 22 is a bright picture, a triumph of faith. I mean, who, who could have faith like that in such a trial? Abraham does. And as I thought of that picture, that biography, which is so much of our lives, I thought, isn't God patient and good? This is how God regards Abraham. He believed in me. He trusted my promises. He followed me, and I determined to bless him, to pick him up when he fell, to carry him on his way, to compensate for all the failures and inconsistencies and disappointments and sins, because I have set my love on Abraham, I will bring about my purposes for Abraham. God was patient and merciful and gracious in Abraham's case, and it's, it's this statement above any other that has stood out to me in reflecting on the conclusion of this series. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, speaking of people who have had faith like Abraham, we read this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were exiles in the world looking to God. 
All their sins, all their failures, all their struggles. They were exiles looking to God. And it's verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And it's this next line. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Isn't that an interesting statement? God is not ashamed of Abraham to stand with him, to save him, to welcome him into the heavenly country. God is not ashamed of me. If I believe his promise and look to him with all the things that make me ashamed of myself, all the people that at times in my life have been ashamed of me, but this is the patience and mercy and grace of God. He is not ashamed to be called our God. If we follow Him in faith, those who are looking to Him for His grace, He's willing to stand with us and identify with us and not be ashamed of us, but rather to invite us into a relationship with Him, into everlasting life with Him. I think that is the note that should prevail, should be written over Abraham's life. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for those who have faith a city. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to know your word. And we want your word to have its effect on us. We said it in the equip hour. We want orthodoxy. Right teaching. We insist we must know the truth as it's revealed in your word. But we want the truth to overcome every encumbrance and every obstacle of sin and pride and, and ignorance in us so that we would know how to live in light of the truth. We want to have faith, and we want to have those works that proceed from faith. So help us, Lord, to understand Your Word, to know Your Word, to live out the life of good works that You call us to for all those who have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank You that it is true, at all times true, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, and that even as we say that, as we believe that, we recognize that you are pleased in your mercy and your grace and your kindness to gather up such people who are looking to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, to gather up such people, to bring them into a heavenly country, and you, the God of all holiness and justice and righteousness, you, God, are not ashamed to call us your people. And you are not ashamed. You don't have to blush or turn your face away. When we call you our God, how we thank you. How ashamed we so often feel about ourselves. But we thank you that through the merits of your Son, you have assured us you are not ashamed of us, but will receive all those who look to you in faith. Encourage us with this truth. Excite us with the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.